Welcome to the Armchair Trader podcast. And today we have Stephen Yu in the studio, managing partner and chief investment officer at the Blue Whale Growth Fund, um, and a fund which is widely followed by the investor community. Welcome to the podcast, Stephen. Thank you, Stuart. Um, so firstly, for those listeners who haven't heard of uh, Blue Whale Growth Fund, can you give us a quick uh, rundown on, on the fund itself and what its objectives are? Yeah, so the Blue Whale Growth Fund, we started back in September 17, and we we run a single strategy, basically investing into the best of 25 to 35 stock globally. And the investment philosophy is very simple, that we want to invest into high quality quite quality businesses and an attractive price. And we do all the research in-house. We don't speak to any sell-side analysts or read their research. So we think with a team of five uh, on our side that we should be able to do quite a lot of work in terms of the company that we invest into. Gotcha. And and before you were doing this job, what, what, what sort of roles were you involved in previously? I know you were at um, Nevsky, for example, the hedge fund, which I'm familiar with from back in the day. Yeah, so I started uh, 20 years ago, uh, started my career at Hargreaves Lansdowne. That's where I met Peter Hargreaves, who, who is also the co-founder of Blue Well Capital. And then I joined Team uh, Steer at New Star Asset Management and also Artemis. And then at the time, we were running both a long-only UK fund and also a pan-European long-shot hedge fund. Then, yeah, later on, I joined Martin Taylor and Nevsky Capital for about two years, and I was very much involved uh, looking at the global companies at the time. Great. Now, um, getting getting down to the, the um, investment world, um, you have written recently about how you feel, and this is something I agree with as well, that there's been a real shift in, in the market um, previously, we were in the post-financial crisis era, so the post-2008 era, which really redefined financial markets. Now you're arguing that post-pandemic, the world has changed again. What sort of impact does that have for investors, um, both at, at your level and also private investors? And, and how should that make them change their habits? Yeah, I think that is probably the most important point that we we want to address today is if based on our approach we invest into companies from a bottom-up perspective of course people can take a top-down view on certain issues but if you look at what have what have happened over the last 10-15 years we have an era of uh, cheap money cheap goods and low interest rate for a very long period of time and at the time, of course, if you invest into companies that would benefit in terms of selling more goods to consumers, people are spending more money because they have more money in their pocket and interest rate being quite low, which means that I think typically the equity market goes up when interest rate is quite low, then it's all quite straightforward or it's a lot easier to make money from the market. But then if you look at uh, what happened during the pandemic, you already would have seen that there's going, that's, there was a massive differential in terms of companies that benefited from pandemic, like the pandemic winners, like the FANGs at the time. And then equally, when you have the traditional businesses because of the lockdown that they, they did suffer quite a lot during the pandemic. But I think what we are saying now is in the next five years, we are going into a new world, which is post-pandemic that when you follow what's going on in the world now, we do have quite 
a high level of uncertainties in terms of geopolitics developments in both uh, Asia-Pacific, in the Middle East, and of course, we still have a war going on in Ukraine. And at the same time, on the back of that, you have uh, many companies trying to de-risk away from, uh, let's say, Taiwan or maybe China. They're trying to reshore some of the uh, some of the activities back to the U.S. or maybe in Mexico. And at the same time, that we we do think that inflation is going to come down from from very high rate, let's say ten percent, but it's still going to settle down at a higher level than before. So it's unlikely that we go back to the two percent regime. It's maybe more likely that we would stay at about maybe four percent regime. So what it means is interest rate is going to remain higher for longer. So when you put all this together, you what you want to do as an investor is you want to find companies that either would benefit from some of these trends, which I'm sure we can talk about later, or you want to avoid companies that will be impacted by some of this trend going forward. So you don't want to, for example, you don't want to invest into highly indebted businesses because if they need to refinance at a high rate in the next couple of years, that profit is going to suffer. And at the same time, you probably don't want to invest into companies that have over exposure to certain dynamics that that might be working in the in the opposite direction going forward as well. And when you're looking, you you're obviously a bottom up stock picker. Um, what are you looking for for a company? What you know, the ideal company that someone puts in your Christmas stocking. Um, what are the what what characteristics would that company have? I know it probably doesn't exist, but um, what 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 sort of things are you looking for there? Yeah, so I so if you look at our top ten holdings, which they are all for a large company to start with, would be that we like company that have a very strong competitive positioning. So in terms of the market share they have uh, in the product or services they sell, and one way of doing. One way of assessing that is to look at the switching costs. So, for example, for people who work in office, like most of us will be using Office 365, which is a product by Microsoft. And if you think about the switching cost of us moving on to another, let's say, Word or Outlook or email system, let's say Google G Suite, it's almost impossible to do that. Like, so despite the fact that Microsoft have increased prices by about 15 to 20% over the last 18 months, I've, we are still uh, staying within the same ecosystem. But then in contrast for some other companies such as, let's say, Netflix or Zoom, that the switching costs for consumers or users are pretty low. So that, let's say, if we our consumer po- our pocket is now being squeezed by inflation, by high level of interest rate, and then we and then there's only a limited time, limited amount of time that we have to watch uh, new content, we could easily switch off our subscription to Netflix for a couple of months and go to Now TV, go to Disney Plus, and then come back to Netflix. So, so what it means is they it does have implication about their pricing power if they decided to raise a lot of prices consumer might might be voting with their feet that they go they would go somewhere else because their lock-in or the switching cost is quite low so that is very important and of course then on top of that you want to invest in your company with an exceptional management team that they are quite incentivized to do quite well and last but not least which is going back to the point i mentioned earlier is you in the new regime you want to invest in your companies that their free cash flow delivery over the next coming years is going to be a lot more certain or less uncertain 
because of the geopolitics environment. So hopefully they're going to benefit from some of these dynamics, or at least they're not going to be impacted. So what we are avoiding on the other hand is consumer facing companies. And you can see why consumer facing companies, whether they're tech or not tech, is going to face a, a, a bigger headwinds in the next couple of years compared to the last five years. Understood. And and going back to Microsoft, what is, what is it about Microsoft other than obviously that competitive edge that keeps it in your portfolio? Yeah, I, I think what, what's been quite interesting about Microsoft, obviously, is already the uh, one of, I mean, the second biggest company in the world. And I, I recall there was a time that maybe it was about probably 18 months ago that Microsoft reached about maybe one and a half trillion dollars. And at the time, I think that was some commentator suggesting is is as big as the UK stock market, which is about the same size or or something similar. And 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 how big can it become? Like why how how big can a company to become um to 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 grow more on top of what they have already achieved? But when you look at the uh, innovation from Microsoft, which Teams would be a product, I'm sure most of us will be using Teams over the last couple of years to to interact with our colleagues, to do conference calls, and do a lot of things that we used to probably do in person, and now we can do it virtually. Is that product was um, developed in house, and when you look at the number of people who's using Teams now, is like you talk about like four hundred billion, sorry, four hundred million people using Teams actively. And at the same time, if we are thinking about AI developments, that they have made a very big investment into ChatGPT. So now, going forward, Bing.com, which is their search engine, that is more of a, a competitor, a small, very small competitor to Google Search. They would be able to have the ChatGPT uh, capability to do that. And then going forward as well, which they have recently make an announcement is we they are going to have the co-pilot uh, capability which is a bit it's like an AI within the office 365 domain that you can basically type in command to say can you create me this presentation with all these pointers and our presentation could be created for you in seconds so they have a lot of innovation going on and then if you look at the management team in the last 10 years that they have managed to make the transition into cloud or subscription quite successfully and at the same time the innovation continues and when you put all this together then the question is like how long can this continue is anyone else going to come in to disrupt their business model to take market share from them at the moment it's very difficult to see that just because how dominant they are in terms of especially within the enterprise domain the tech sector obviously is something that a, a lot of investors are really interested in and it's amongst our readers their favored sector um but you you've lost um enthusiasm for the the fangs um you've said in the past uh, what is it what is it about the fangs that that um are looking less attractive now to you yeah we so we we were just talking about earlier that in this new regime that it doesn't matter what you do, you probably want to avoid consumer facing companies. So whether they're technology company or not technology company, the reason for that is our discretionary spending or our pocket is going to remain squeezed by inflation, by food prices, energy bills, at the same time, high level interest rate. If you have a mortgage and this is going to come, especially in the UK, that the 
the the typical mortgage period is probably two to three years. So if you bought a house two years ago, you probably would need to renew next year or so at a much higher rate, so that we have less money to to spend on a discretionary basis. And then when you look at the FANGS company, most of these companies are consumer facing to start with, like Amazon. Uh, Google uh, in terms of their digital advertising revenue stream, like even Apple in a way that is consumer facing. Of course, I mean, you can argue that Apple may be on a different league because people seem to be quite happy to pay a high price for, for the next uh, for the next iPhone and it is announced this uh, new um, new lens yesterday that is going to um, to be quite expensive to be quite expensive product. And at the same time, the other thing that we have tried to reposition our fund is we, if we were to pick a region that we do prefer North America as a region so that we want to have more exposure to the American economy or American consumers, if that is the one that we want to pick. But when you look at the FANGS company, they are all global businesses. So on average, about 50% of their money or revenue is coming from outside of North America. And of course, we're sitting here in Europe, in UK, we do know that inflation is killing us a lot more than some other places. And so so basically what, what the FANGs is going to experience in the next couple of years, not that they can't do well, but they are going to face a lot more headwinds. One is consumer spending, discretionary spending. At the same time, it's the global development outside of North America. Yeah, and um, staying on the tech theme, uh, the artificial intelligence story you've you've touched on it already in connection with microsoft we hear about it every day at the moment i'm in the investment world as well in fact everyone's talking about it right now is that is that a story that's being overbought in the market are people attributing too much importance to it right now um should we all just be calming down or is this really going to be um a big game changer for for the investment market and for the global economy more generally. Yeah, we 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 do think is a game changer uh, in terms of what we are going to experience in the next couple of years compared to the last decade. And the reason we I the rationale behind this was was purely mostly purely down to the rise of ChatGPT, like how ChatGPT has come into our day to day. Because if you think about AI development over the last, let's say, 10, 20 years, it's not new. Like everyone knows that there's a bit of AI going on. If you go onto YouTube, that would be video recommended to you. You go onto TikTok, that would be very clever algorithm based on your interest, like certain video get recommended to you. You go onto Facebook, like you will see certain news flow that, sorry, news articles that get pop onto your screen, which would be very different to someone else's uh, Facebook account. A lot of this have been done by AI in the past. So AI is not new to the software developers, to the scientists. I'm sure that a lot there's a lot of um, biotech engineers trying to use AI to come up with new drugs or molecules and all this stuff. But what have changed in the last six months is the, the how ChatGPT have given us as consumer, the day-to-day layman, a glimpse of what is possible. And of course, we probably would think that it's going to come in time. What we didn't know is going to come so quickly, which is basically now, like we, everyone, like if you look at the user base within ChatGPT, you're talking about like probably 100 to 200 million people already have used 
that capability, and it's still at a very early stage of what is possible going forward. So we think that have changed, and some people would actually suggest that the arrival of ChatGPT is similar to the iPhone moment, but more in the AI world, so that now everyone can have a bit of uh, uh, interaction with AI. And the other thing which is important to note is ChatGPT is only the beginning of this. Like in, in a couple of years' time, I would not be surprised if no one ever then talk about ChatGPT. Just a bit similar to Google was the seven or eight search engine that was created. And we didn't even remember what's, uh, what's the other six or seven search engine before Google. Now we only talk about Google. So ChatGPT could be one of those, could be a fate. But what is yet to come is there's going to be many more equivalent of ChatGPT. I'm sure Microsoft would have their version. Amazon would have their version. Apple is going to come up with their own. I think Elon Musk is trying to work something out for their Twitter audience as well. So there's going to be many more of this equivalent ChatGPT, which is generative AI. And it's going to change a lot of things that we, we do going forward. And that, and I think the implication of that could be similar to when we have the industrialization in factories. So if you go into a factory now, you don't see many people on the shop on on the floor. You see many robotic arms trying to put a car together. You go to a Tesla factory. You you see all these things being automated. I think what haven't uh, taken place, which is going to come quite dramatically, is in the white collar worker space, like in the office environment, that you can see that a lot of these jobs that people do on a very low level could become could be automated, could be done by the AI. It doesn't need a person to put together a PowerPoint presentation. You can easily just ask the AI to do it for you. And of course, you still have the human touch to maybe fine-tune certain wording of uh, how, how you want it to be presented, but the grunt work could be done by AI. So theoretically, we it's going to solve certain issues that in the next couple of years we would probably have less labor shortages, and and you 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 basically would value experiences more. Like you want to you want to hire people with a lot of experience to add value on top of what is already achieved by AI. But then if you are just starting up your career, that you you are told to okay, let's put this deck together, let's go through all this like data point together. I mean, that could be done by AI. No, I see, I see what you mean. It's obviously going to have a huge impact. I wanted to go back to something else we mentioned already. You've touched on it. Um, geopolitical risks. Um, if we're talking about a new era of investment, that seems to be dominating a lot of investors' worries at the moment. It's causing a lot of um, wealthy investors to almost stay out of the market and sit in cash. Um uh, the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine shook a lot of people up. When you're looking at a global portfolio, um, how do you allow for that? I mean, I know you've mentioned already on this podcast that that you are looking at companies in North America that have less international exposure. Do you have any other considerations you bring to bear when you're looking at, at, at stocks? And do you see these geopolitical risks as something that's here to stay? We do think that the geopolitical risk is here to stay. It's probably going to get worse become before it gets better. And this could last for the, for the next five to 10 years. I think we're just literally in this new regime when you look at 
uh, what Putin is doing in Europe and what uh, Xi could be doing in Asia or to Taiwan in the next couple of years, I, that is not going to go away anytime soon. So this is completely a new regime. So what we can do as investors is two things that we can do. The first layer is try to invest into companies that could be exposed to certain uh, uncorrelated drivers to the rest of what's going on in the world. So AI being one that you can see that AI is going to get adopted quite quickly, as quickly as we can. And at the same time, if you are the company, let's say NVIDIA, which is uh, the largest position that we have in the fund to get exposure to, to this, is they are the, they're selling their mission critical equipments to build out the infrastructure, which is the GPU that they have in order for AI application to be run on, on top. So that could continue despite that, yes, geopolitics uncertainty is here to stay. So that remained quite a big part of our fund. And of course, I mean, we have talked about Microsoft and some other companies, and that would be the same for them as well. But equally, there are certain companies or sectors that could benefit from some of this geopolitics uncertainty, which we have equally uh, made uh, certain investment into. So a couple of those things like uh, the, the reshoring opportunities in the US, which is on the back, purely on the back of what company want to de-risk away from, let's say, China, or, or try to bring certain production capability back to the US. So we have invested in the two uh, US railroads. Um, and so if we expect more things is going to be produced domestically, then the railroads are going to benefit. And of course, it's US-centric or North America-centric to start with. So they are less exposed to geopolitical risk. And then secondly, we also have invested into an energy company, which is fairly new to us. Uh, uh, last year that with the, this company that we had operate in a very stable region, which is in Canada, Canadian Natural Resources. But if you think about what geopolitics uncertainty means, even though that we don't think we can forecast the oil price to whatever level it's going to be, but you can easily come up with a scenario that if there's more conflicts going on, the oil price is going to go to a high level or being at least well supported at the current level despite that a recession is yet to come like everyone talk about recession but when you follow the energy market let's say look at saudi arabia they are trying to <clears throat> basically cut production to support the oil price that's part of the same narrative is about geopolitical uncertainty it's about getting the price to stay at a certain level and then of course if you you operate in a regime or in a in a region that's quite safe or quite uh, quite sound. At the same time, you the the cost of production per barrel of oil is quite low, which is what this company is sub thirty and forty dollars. Then they're going to make a lot more money in the next couple of years if oil price just maybe assuming that it's going to stay at seventy or eighty, not going up to a hundred. So that is another one. And the last one, which is probably more controversial because you can read it both way, but then we have we would think that is more positive, net positive than negative, is semiconductors equipment companies. So you would have followed that's a lot of headline going on in the last couple six months that the US trying to restrict certain technology going into China. So so that if you're producing so if you're the company is producing semiconductor equipment company, you would be barred to sell your equipment to China because they want to probably stop China. <clears throat> 
China advancement in terms of the semiconductors capability. But then equally on the back of that is we have the uh, the Chips Act in the US and then we have the equivalent of that in Europe. And at the moment on the back of this geopolitics uncertainty or trying to come trying to stop China from advancing that capability is there are three hundred billion dollars committed to build new foundries in the Western world. So we so that's going to go into the US, going to Germany, going to France. I think even UK is talking about building a new foundry. I think we might be a bit short of money to do that because it's quite expensive. But then how have this all this come about? It's because people are worried about Taiwan. Like at the moment, majority of the high-end semiconductors produced in Taiwan, if one day Taiwan ended up to no longer be independent, then we need to have that capability. So how all this commitment come about from the government perspective was the byproduct of the geopolitics uncertainty. So they would be selling many more of their equipments in the next few years compared to the last 10 years, just because we want to replicate what Taiwan has in terms of uh, capability. And um, just finally, uh, when you're looking at companies, are you, are you applying any... Um considerations in terms of the actual governance of the company and their uh, social environmental record um, and do you think that a good record in these areas can be a, a contributor to positive performance and, and have you ever looked at a company and said look we're not we're just not happy with what these guys are doing right now their environmental record is poor or we've got a few um, governance red flags have been shown is that is that a big issue for you guys so the way that we have done it, obviously, the fund is not a ESG fund. So we, we are a global fund. We, we don't have a restriction in terms of what we can do and not do. But the way that we assess quality of a company is we, we deem ESG as a risk factor to the business in terms of the return on investor capital profile of this company. So what it means if you, if you are not doing the right thing in terms of either doing it to the environment or doing it on a social space or even the governance, is going to increase the cost of capital for the company. Or it means that the regulator is going to come after you a lot more. You have the more more activists coming after you, like trying to probably make changes or disrupt your business and all this stuff. So that is not, like if you operate in a way that you don't really care about what's going on in the world as a company, then it's not good for shareholders. I think we would expect any high quality businesses that we invested into, let's say Microsoft or NVIDIA, would be doing the right thing or even Master and Visa. I mean, they would have the way of approaching ESG. And, and it's just one of those things like at the moment it's quite a heated uh, topic because like you would have people arguing different, I mean, of different camps arguing, oh, we need to go all in. Like we, we only look at companies that are actively engaging with the, uh, the ESG conversation. And then there's certain uh, investor would say, okay, we just want to see a progression in terms of that development. That you have certain investors say, I don't really care what this is, how this is going about. Let's invest in anything. So, so, but in 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 probably I don't know, maybe 10, 20 years time, that ESG conversation is probably going to disappear because, firstly, only company that would be actively engaging or positively uh, engaging with this narrative would remain high quality 
or you have company that doesn't really care. They, they just, they're no longer part of the market. And so from, from our perspective, we just want to invest into companies that are on the right side of the camp and not on the wrong side. And, and, and that's what we're doing in terms of how we assess the ESG factors. Well, thank you very much indeed for your, your time this morning, Stephen. That's been really informative. And thank you. Thank you for coming on the podcast today. You've been listening to the Armchair Trader podcast. Make sure you visit our website, www.thearmchairtrader.com, for your daily dose of financial markets news and sign up to our free newsletter there.